0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Welcome to Plato's Cave. This is a 3 R film criticism show and it's also a podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Emma Westwood is absent. We didn't quite get the full cave back as we were hoping for.
0: You may say I'm a dreamer but I'm not the only one It will happen
1: one day <laughs> We will get all four of us back in the studio at some point But uh, thank you for doing such a brilliant job while I was away
0: We missed you
1: Oh good, because I was sitting there feeling all redundant and left out no. So um, I'm glad I was missed
0: no. But
1: <laughs> big thank you to Carl Chapman for doing uh, a really fantastic job on, In panelling the show in my absence uh, Carl often steps in and does that for us And he's always a delight uh, He knows his film as well yes he does he does we we, agreed we, we don't turn on the microphone for him but if we did i'm sure it would be good well, there's a, a thought.
2: <laughs> Th- that
1: is a thought. Carl actually fills in a lot over summer, um, doing various summer fills and stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, look, he's very much part of the RRR family and we love having him involved in this show. Speaking of this show, tonight we're going to be taking a look at Alien Covenant, the latest film in the Alien franchise. We're also going to be discussing the highly acclaimed documentary Fire at Sea, which looks at a quiet Sicilian island that has become the first port of call for many refugees, travelling from Africa to Europe. But first, Whiteley is a new feature documentary by writer-director James Bogle, who is probably best known for his television and narrative feature film work, which includes Closed for Winter from 2009 and In the Winter Dark from 1998. Now, as its title suggests, Whiteley is a documentary about the acclaimed and award-winning avant-garde Australian artist Brett Whiteley. The film is a portrait of Whiteley that is told fairly straightforwardly through voiceovers, archival material and some reenactments to cover his entire life from his childhood through to his rise to fame in the 1960s, his enormous success in the 1970s and later battles with addiction that led to his death in 1992 at the age of 53. Now there is some focus on technique and influences but this is predominantly a biographical film aimed, I think, at audiences who aren't already familiar with Whiteley's work or significance. Do you think that's a fair summary, that this is very much aimed for people like me, who knew the name but actually knew very little about him? I'm really keen to hear Alex say anything (laughs) about this
2: before. I do because she's she's just almost... um, what did you, you prayed for death last week for? for <laughs> uh, really in your get review of Patrick, yeah, please, that. please
1: don't bring that yeah. up in my presence. Uh, Wick um,
0: Thomas and I are going to have a, a scrag if we bring that up. Again. I've got
1: so much energy anyway. <laughs> um, but. but But let's just establish the form of Whiteley, though. I mean, often when we look at documentaries like this, I think a lot of the challenge for documentary filmmakers is do I make this film for the people who know nothing about this person to introduce them to them and their work, or am I making this as a tribute for people who are aware and want to see their work explored in a somewhat cinematic style? Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. I think... um, I do want to start on a positive. This film has a really beautiful poster. I, I strongly recommend that oh you dear. have a look at the post. The poster's just beautiful. Alex. I don't want to be a negative Nelly <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> the poster is and good. I, <laughs> I do think that um, very clearly watching this film, I think that um, obviously it was made in very close, in a very close relationship not only to Whiteley's family but who are also involved with the Brett Whiteley Foundation. So we're not going to get a kind of... This is not an expose, documentary no. um it's it is exactly as you say it's it's basically wikipedia with pictures <laughs> yeah. see now I, now i'm starting to somebody say something <laughs> nice i love the poster the poster's gorgeous
1: but i think we well, yeah, th- th- this is not sort of an impressionist portrait of his work it's very much a to z or you know, t- to be crude cradle to grave um and i think it touches on all the major points in his life that would be of interest i i knew nothing about whiteley i feel a bit embarrassed to admit that i was aware of the name and the significance but I, I wouldn't have ever been able to point out one of his works had it been shown to me so that was my interest in seeing the film as a crash course on who was this guy what was his significance what kind of artwork was he doing and i was really interested to see that he sort of the, the, the form he was taking was almost like political cartooning a, a lot of the time as well. It reminded me of um, you know, what's the cartoonist? The the, um, uh, the the titles for, yes, Prime Minister or or, or um, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, Gerald Scarf. Gerald Scarf? Like, yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. That's This has gone somewhere that I didn't or, expect it to or, or go. E- e- I love e- it. Even Ralph Steedman. Yeah, his his so work it reminded me of some of that. Similar lines. Yeah. Uh,
2: I knew a reasonable amount about Brett Whiteley, though, um, what I had foremost in my mind when I watched this, uh, ahead, ahead, immediately ahead of just watching it, was that uh, classic late show sketch of many years back. Who knew Brett best? Shortly after his death, a whole bunch of uh, folk clamoured to be in front of the media, uh, the cameras here back in the day to talk about how much they knew Brett and how much they missed him, of course. I mean, a lot of that was no doubt very authentic, but it turned into a a, a real circus. We don't get any of that circus uh, in this film. There's a bit of warts and all because there were always warts, but that was part of the public myth of this particular artist and of of so many others, a lot of it quite cliche. You could say the troubles with having an addictive personality Um, and with the actual addiction issues that uh, are invariably attached to such a... um, uh, I think, actually undiagnosable condition. I don't know if that's actually... Is, it, is an addictive personality a thing? Do we know? Or is that just um, Dr. I Google? don't know. It's
0: definitely a lowercase thing. I don't know mm. whether it's a uppercase it's thing. It's
1: spoken but yeah. to. I, I think anecdotally there isn't a such a thing. I, no. I don't think actual medical practitioners would back the idea that an addictive personality is a real... Thing. Thing. They probably but, um, wouldn't
0: also use the word thing as no. much as we <laughs> just have.
1: Shout out to the doctors and the scientists who do shows on the weekend <laughs> and who often, and, who and often discuss film. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear what they say about this, actually, because yeah. we're not qualified. <laughs> no. <laughs> a-
2: any, anyway, I, um, I actually enjoyed this very evidently a lot more than Alex did, uh, but I struggled with aspects of it. The, the, it is a, a very conventional documentary, very linear Uh, For for an artist whose work was so often full of abstraction, there's not a lot of that in the construction of this documentary. It's a very linear narrative. Um, There's a a little bit of play with form, but it's extremely familiar sort of play that um, a lot of two-dimensional images rendered strangely three-dimensional through bringing figures in the foreground of a photo somehow out of the photo's background a little. A lot of that stuff and then put on oblique angles and just made as if... to give the impression of depth for what to what end I always wonder why, why do people do that why has that become such a documentary cliche in recent times Kind of
1: annoys me. Is it the kid stays in the picture? They kind of first really did that, and a lot of people have copied it since. I don't know who did it first, but it's because it that, works that, that was with that because it,
0: it goes so hard on it. Like it just, yep. it just like that's its thing,
1: and it's great in that film. Yeah, it, it really but, works. But you're right, Cerise. We've seen this an awful lot, and it wasn't terribly exciting the way it was used in this film. And well, again, there's,
0: it, there's a credit for Ice Stock, like the the, the most sort of you know. Googleable, you know, yeah. that when you do a Google search for stock photos, iStock is like the first one that comes off. So this is kind of, you know, they get mentioned in the credits for this. That's pretty standard stock footage. And to me, it was just filler. It was like, okay, what can we put in here that yeah, is a is. moving image? Yeah, like,
2: yeah. It's utterly unnecessary, especially when there's actually some really good archival footage in this. There's some great stuff from the the 60s, 70s, 80s, stuff that does help paint a picture of the society of the time, whether Australia or London just before it really gets swinging in the 60s and a little bit of Chelsea Hotel uh, heyday um, New York. And that, that was all quite interesting because I didn't know he'd spent time there, let alone attempted his own personal Guernica, something that was supposed to somehow, you know, the ego here is amazing, but uh, somehow bring the entire American people's attention to the horrors of the Vietnam War and all of the other unrest in the States at the time and make a difference. That, that naivety is almost charming, but it's also totally ego, egomaniacal. But, hey, great artists, say eh? What are you going to do, Alex?
0: I um, I struggled with this film and I didn't want to. I think I was the one that actually recommended that we did it. Um, I, yeah, I yeah. this happens a lot. I, <laughs> <it does. laughs> this, is like, this is becoming a pattern. I think I should no longer recommend <laughs> films. I, I honestly didn't think that you could make a film about somebody as interesting as Brett Whiteley in such a pedestrian manner. It really feels like a moving Wikipedia entry. Um, I, it's certainly not. Bad. I wouldn't call it bad. Um, I wasn't engrossed enough with it. I think to feel that it was particularly bad. It 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 felt to me like, and I, I say this quite sincerely. It felt to me like the audience that this was meant for was like um, like a cashed up boomer looking to expand their portfolio by investing in art. It felt Ouch. like an ad. Like you should, Brett Brett Whiteley matters. It wasn't even like Sunday afternoon arts programming. It was like, here is a cultural figure that you should, it just felt like an ad. It felt at one point it's like, is Brett Whiteley trying to host the Olympics? It was that kind of tone of promotional video, not even documentary in places outside of that Wikipedia, you know, kind of, thing and this is like you guys have said there was amazing archival footage in there there was amazing stuff to work with and I understand that not everybody is going to be Simon Sharma you know and doing things like the power of art but I was actually quite taken back at just how thoroughly pedestrian this Mm. was in you know a film about an artist who's anything but and the the Brett Whiteley presented in this film obviously this was meant to be a very kind of glowing positive film and I, I thought that the film presented him actually as a bit of a dick
1: I, well, yeah, I, I think I had two issues with the film. And, look, I, I'm kind of glad I saw it because, I, as, I, as I said, I knew very little about him, and it is a, a Brett Whiteley crash course. Um, but I was disappointed by how sort of uncinematically exciting it was. And, you know, we, I mentioned before, yeah, The kid stays in the Picture, the terrific documentary about Hollywood producer Robert Evans. I also thought about the um, the National Lampoon's documentary we saw. What was it called? Drunk Stoned Brilliant and Dead that's or something like that. such a great doco, okay. yeah, yeah, which incorporates the aesthetic of that magazine mm-hmm. to the film form in a way that's so exciting. And it, it shows up films like this. And the sort of uh, the unengaging reenactments. And again, I, I kept on thinking about how uh, women he's undressed use reenactments in a really powerful, impressive, fun, engaging way. So you hold it up to other films using similar techniques and it just lacks the vibrancy. Um, but look, I also struggled, I think, with the sort of fairly unquestioning um, glowing approach to him. And it felt very authorised. Yeah, and I, I do struggle with the kind of portrait of the genius artist where you found he's been a dick to the women in his life, and it's sort of a footnote in the film. And I've, I've actually seen one or two films, very similar like this, uh, recently, and I'm just a bit tired of the kind of the brilliant male artist, and they're often from this boomer generation too, where that stuff wasn't questioned. As much, and, and I'm not trying to say that I think his personal life—I mean, he—he did, he didn't do anything criminally wrong. Well, apart from the drugs, but, but you know, he—he <laughs> he, he didn't do anything majorly morally wrong, in my uh, opinion, other than being just a, a, a bit of a bit of a dick. But that—that that was part of who he was. And I got a bit bored hearing about his male sensuality and how that poured through the paintings in ways that maybe was radical and amazing at the time, but by today's standards was a little bit trite Um, and I I know that again that's really unfair maybe at the time it had a huge impact but I kind of you know as somebody who had similar desires to him I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at it I I, I wish the film was more critical and engaged with the subject matter rather than being all um, yeah it, it needed to have more of a critical edge
0: and and energy I could have almost forgiven it that if there was just some kind of spark I don't know how you can talk about somebody like Brett Whiteley and not in a monotone, effectively. I mean, well, I, I just, there was none of the, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, his paintings are these really kind of energetic and it's, and it's there was nothing about this film that had any kind of spark or electricity outside of the fact that we kept being told he had spark and electricity.
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, every time uh, it cut away to some of Whiteley's own words, not quite every time, but altogether too many times it uh, put a little sound bed of just uh, sort of bongos and you know, cliche uh, beat Nick uh, vibes that just um, really worked against the, I wouldn't exactly say the profound things Whiteley was saying, but it was at least interesting in a, a very 60s cosmic sort of a way. If um, I, I, From my understanding of what I knew about Whiteley before I saw this doco, he was actually hugely into music, which doesn't come up at all in this documentary and that he painted to music. Music influenced the painting every bit as much as the landscape, which comes up time and again in this documentary that he was all about where he was and that fed directly into the art. But we hear nothing about the part in his life that music played and, and that was something that would obviously have elevated the film if it hadn't just had this sort of generic bongo's beat you know, beat stuff going on yeah. underneath his own words
1: There was some discussion at points about technique, about how he was mixing paint and using paint and there was some discussion of his inspirations and how he was really impressed by what the Renaissance, I think, artists were mm. doing in comparison to some of the Australian masters and And that kind of really hardcore art conversation was fascinating and I really wish the film followed through with with with, with more of that. Um, and, and I don't for a minute think that the film should have had a different focus. It, it's, it's a film about Brett White I mean, I read a piece that was very angry saying, Why wasn't this film more about his wife? And I thought, Well, that's unfair because. That would the film, be a very different film. The film is about Brett yep. Whiteley. I think she probably deserves her own film. I she would love to see that
0: film. Yeah.
1: Fascinating. But I think it's unfair to criticise this film because it's about the person the film is named after, not somebody else. But I wish there was more of that kind of thing in there. And, and I should also. This conversation we're having reminds me of way back in the day where Josh Tara and I reviewed a film about Diana uh, Vreeland. And it was a documentary, and none of us were particularly... Actually, it was just Tara and I. We weren't impressed with the film, but a lot of people took that as us attacking Diana Veland and missing the point of who she was and her significance. So I just want to say, I'm not making a judgement about Brett Whiteley. I'm making a judgement about the film. And, and And whatever the kind of genius he was, I didn't get the sense of that from yeah. the film because it was a bit flat, and it frustrated me by being a bit too glowing and not being rigorous enough in its analysis of who he was. I
0: agree. I, I mean, for me, Brett Whiteley is an, is an artist about energy and, and electricity and, and something just so kinetic. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean kinetic art. I just mean in, in him as, as a popular, you know, as an icon, as an, you know, him himself as a kind of Australian icon and his art as well. And this film absolutely just doesn't have that. And it also, I really liked seeing Aki. That was a little special thing for me. Yeah. And I just have to give a little shout out for Aki. She was in Razorback.
1: This is his daughter? His daughter, yeah. who
0: died very young, but um, her big, well, not her big claim to fame, her big claim to fame, I guess, is that she was Brett Whiteley's daughter and grew up in the Chelsea Hotel. She's majestic in, um, in Razorback. I just had to throw that in there. She's so
1: good. I'm still really glad I saw this film as a kind of base foundation for me now to explore more about who Brett Whiteley was, and I'm keen, keen to do that. Yeah. So that's nothing that. Nothing much I, to add. It was all a bit glib. I um, really
0: like the poster.
1: You like the poster? It's a good poster.
0: <laughs> it's a beautiful poster.
1: Yeah. That we can agree on. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 R. We've been talking about the documentary, Whiteley.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Cerise and Alex. Alien Covenant is the latest film in the Alien franchise, making it film number 8 or 6 depending on whether or not you count the Alien versus Predator crossover films from yes, the yes, 2000s. Yes, 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 yes. No. <laughs> but more precisely, it is the second prequel film uh, and it takes place 10 years after the 2012 film Prometheus but it still takes place sometime before the original 1979 Alien film. Now, once more, directed by Alien and Prometheus director Ridley Scott, Alien Covenant brings together a mix of the style, aesthetics and themes of the previous two films. So the story concerns a group of colonists who divert from their original mission to instead check out a nearby planet that they can potentially start their own colony on. But after a a landing party sent down to survey this planet, they discover it isn't exactly a welcoming environment. The cast includes Catherine Watterson, Billy Crudup and Danny McBride uh, as some of the colonists, and also Michael Fassbender as a new version of the synthetic character he previously played in Prometheus. So before we get into discussing Alien Covenant, I think we need to establish our position on the Alien films. I am a massive fanboy. I count the first two as masterpieces of modern cinema. I'm even a big fan of the third film, and the fourth, and nobody is a fan of the fourth except I am. for me. This is amazing, sir. This is why you and I get on well. We of like, this one film because we like Alien Resurrection, which is a really hated film for reasons I don't understand. I but wish
0: people could see your body language now, Thomas. I'm you're getting, like you're uh, like Orson Welles in Citizen Kane when he gives the speech. You like got your arms out. You're actually making a declaration. <laughs> it's incredible. I have got
1: splayed arms right here, haven't I? But I, I adore the original four Alien films. I'm heavily invested in this mythology. This is one of these pop culture things. Is really big for me. What about the rest of the rest of the team? I don't have that same level of investment. Uh, I, it's probably healthy. Yeah, it, it is healthy. Mm. Uh, I'll vouch
2: that for that. Um, but I, look, I went into this with low expectations, which were met, so that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I didn't go in with any great sense of investment. I, I know this is supposed to. The events in this, uh, after the events depicted in Prometheus, which was also underwhelming, uh, and ahead of the w- uh, events in the original Alien, and maybe there's still more sequel, prequels. Prequel, sequels? There's, uh, more,
1: there's more prequel, sequels, yeah. Well, well,
2: what happens when you have more prequels than sequels eventually? Do, does the whole relationship of one to the other just become totally unmoored and you just have to let go of the whole thing and realise it's chaos. And I don't know, it
1: becomes yeah, <laughs> From the... From what
0: I've seen, yes. yes.
1: <laughs> prequels don't work as a rule, do they? I mean, you look at what happened with The Hobbit and what happened with George Lucas's Star Wars films. I'm just... I'm, surely there's been some examples of prequels that haven't been... Mm. I mean, uh, Godfather Part Two is technically a prequel slash sequel and that's incredible, but... What was the, the
2: name of the guy who wrote the, the Scream film... Uh, at least the first one and then the next and ends Craven. up... Craven. Yeah, yeah, not Craven, but the guy direct, uh, wrote... Oh, uh, Kevin... Um, Kevin, yeah, that guy. Has Alex,
1: that, come on, you're the horror person.
2: Has that guy ever written a prequel to put this to the test? <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> without him Kevin Williams doing the, that work... That yes, name? I think that sounds yeah. right.
1: Yeah. We'll never know. Sorry, we, we, got, <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got horribly sidetracked. But yeah, but th- th- there are going to be lots more of these prequel sequels, Why? apparently. Mm.
2: Is Ridley going to direct all of them? Can't he just handball
1: this to someone? He's, yeah, with, I think that's apparently what's going to mm. happen. Ridley Scott is... I mean, it was so exciting when Prometheus came out. Ridley Scott is back on the franchise and he's going to go back and start it all. And I don't know, should I la- launch into my rant now about how I feel? Now nah, seems timely. What is really... Look, I I, I I think Alien Covenant is a disappointing film. I, look, I didn't mind watching it especially towards the end when it got back to sort of rehashing the good bits from the original films i mean it was a blatant rehash but at least i enjoyed back in the claustrophobic kind of environment where a lot of the film they spend stuffing around on this planet it's a bit like i think i'm the only one here who saw the new guardians of the galaxy film as well that they this kind of sense of momentum is really stifled by the characters just wandering around on a big empty planet for a lot of the film and it sucks the energy out um what I really disliked is this kind of retro, um, this retrofitting the mythology of the series. So the original alien films were so much about this kind of primal feminine force in, in, um, in really kind of classic ways. It was sort of this, this kind of highly de- 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 destructive or, or organic creature, this kind of embodiment of nature at its most kind of neutral and uncaring, was just there to survive. And, you know, it came up against the the Sigourney Weaver character who sort of embodied this more traditional idea of what it means to be a nurturer and and a mother. And and all kind of uh, attempts by the the male-dominated corporations, the kind of working-class truckers in the first film, the male-dominated marines just found that they just got destroyed, that their hubris was absolutely obliterated by this kind of force of nature slash femininity. These new films have changed all that to the aliens now being this kind of biological weapon created by a bunch of men from corporations who also create these synthetic robots who then go on and create the biological weapons. And it's sucked the life out of what was a really exciting, interesting mythology by trying to over-explain the origins of these aliens. They're no longer just this incredible, dangerous force of nature. It's become seriously overcooked. Yep. And... uh yeah, I found
2: this so frustrating. The sexual politics of this seemed decidedly retrograde, and you know maybe there's an argument for that. In that notionally, the events in these films take place in before the events in Alien and Aliens and Alien Three and Alien Resurrection and Alien as Predators One and Two. <laughs> uh, or, uh, but it, from a, a, the perspective of a viewer in 2017, it seems decidedly a misstep. um, there are all these extremely conventional relationships in this film that uh, seem to desperately compromise people's professionalism but then it all becomes decidedly inconsequential too. People lose their partners agonise briefly and then just get on with uh, becoming alien fodder. It's all just daft. It, the whole film just seems decidedly weightless and I didn't even get a single decent startle so I felt
1: kind of gypped on that front as well. It's all very rushed. I mean, it feels like at first they might do the slow build which is what is so beautiful in... Um, I think the, the original four films all, have, to a different degree, have a beautiful slow build where everything is rushed in this film. Even the idea of, you know, the, the alien face-hugger thing jumping on your face and impregnating you, that in the original film was something that took place over, like, two or three days. In this film, it seems to happen in five minutes and suddenly there's a fully-grown alien running around. And, again, it just... All the kind of mystique and energy, the life is sucked out of this film... And it's very much, and there's so many aspects of this film that remind you of the beauty and the wonder and the terror of the original films. I mean, they incorporate a lot of the the music cues uh, visually. And I just kept on thinking about how much I love the first two films. Which also had no reliance upon
2: CGI, which I, mean, I don't buy the aliens as CGI either. They're just too too uh, clinically... Um, uh, it's just something. Something doesn't jibe with me at all. They don't, they look too correct. They look too precise, too uh, gleamingly metallic. Uh, It it just doesn't work for me. I I actually lack a sense of them being palpably within shot, within actually being things.
0: I I feel almost fraudulent coming into this conversation because of my great confession, which is these just miss me by. I just, um, I was trying to unpack what was the point. That, that I just missed the whole alien thing. And I think it's a mix of um, a kind of shitty boyfriend when I was very, very young who was really, really into them and which automatically put me off and also being exposed to quite poor psychoanalytic theory when I studied it at university. I think both of those things teamed up in my mind that this was just something not that i think it's terrible but i just it's just kind of tainted for me on a on a kind of personal history level so
1: you with your interests yeah I no i know i know it, it is weird isn't it it's really it. Yeah. weird and
0: it's just one of those little <laughs> i know i realize that it is really strange i've seen i'm sure i've seen the first one Maybe not in one sitting, but bits of it here and there, my husband is obsessed with these films. he's like, you Thomas, he does the stance, the whole thing <laughs> um <me>. exactly, <laughs> like he's so so into them he's like, just watch them and it's like i can't i'm <laughs> I'm burned, I'm burnt, it's like Freud it's Freud um." But it's very. This is really the first. I've seen. Like I said, I've seen bits of them on TV, and I'm kind of familiar with bits of them. But I can't remember from which film. I know the Alien and Predator films because I love Predator. (laughs) So I bring my knowledge on that. Don't get me started on Predator Two. I know it's weird, and I'm not proud. But it's really interesting watching this film when so many. I mean, it's called Covenant, and obviously there's a religious. Theme that's quite strong in this film, you know, the nail and the. There's a lot of. Well,
1: it's mentioned. I don't know if they do anything with um, this.
0: But to me, it's like it's a pact. It's this like holy sacred pact. And just by turning up, you know, the kind of. There's almost like a cockiness of the title. It's like you're here because you've signed up to Alien. Mm. Like that's the deal that we've made is that you're in and I know you're in. I'm not in. I ain't signed no contract, buddy. And you read. I've been reading reviews and they're like, oh, if you're new to the franchise and, you know, the thing that you'll like about this is that you'll probably like the horror. And that, that apparently is quite different from Prometheus which didn't have a lot of gore in it, from what I can pick up. Yeah, Prometheus um, was
1: trying to make this all very existential yeah, and philosophical yeah. and there are these alien creatures who apparently had created humanity and And a, a big point of this new film was to put the alien stuff back yeah. in there. I just wish they jettisoned all the stuff from Prometheus.
0: I Look, I... I mean, yeah. When I read stuff like that, it's like if you haven't seen many of these before, you'll love the you'll love the gore, you'll love the horror. It's like look, bitch, please don't don't tell me what I like. I, there were moments where people <laughs> were sliding in blood. I think this happened quite a few times where people were kind. of... I almost was waiting for the like funniest home video show, like whoops, like, <laughs> that kind of would have given it a bit. I was like laugh looking for other people, like oh, and it's like no, this isn't funny. This is all very very serious. So I don't know. The whole thing to me is somebody from the outside looking in. It all felt a little bit like Malibu Stacy has a new hat, but I wasn't sure how much of that. Sorry, this <laughs> is a Simpsons reference. Yeah, what? Simpsons reference. Remember when Malibu Stacy gets the new hat and everybody goes nuts? Um You know, just that it's 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 the same old alien, but just with some new stuff. So oh, it's new. I don't know. That I I don't know. I, I, got, yeah. I got I got I got confused. Uh, the the there's. The, the, the heavy, highbrow name-dropping, I just thought was ludicrous. Mm. You know, the Byron and the Shelley. There's a reference to um, uh, the beautiful, the Bocklins, um uh, Isle of the Dead painting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really heavy, it's all these very, very highbrow art well, references. Giga d- drew that yeah, like directly. Giga, in Giga the, did a the painting. And I was yeah. even wondering, like, yeah. does Scott know that Giga was referencing, or is this a. Oh, it's hard to be sure. Is this a sure. Buckland reference, or is this but, a Giga reference?
2: Why is it a film set in 210 um, something, constantly riffing on 20th century pop culture? People keep mentioning songs from that period or, or composers. Hmm, yeah. Haven't they got different touchstones by then that they can. Sort of just riff off one another and enjoy that hilarious uh, banter and uh, highly sexually inappropriate, um, but it's the future. Why is this still happening? Type uh, back and forth between all of the, the members of the, the covenant. Uh, it's just yeah, I, I found that none it just didn't work for me this film. I didn't. I wasn't annoyed. I wasn't fr- especially frustrated. I was just uh, on a sort of fairly base level. Engaged, but mm. came out of it feeling I'm neither better nor worse for that Look, two hours just
0: passed. I was bewildered and it, it's not made for me. It's not made for people mm. who aren't invested in this franchise from the outset, but it doesn't sound like it's particularly made for people who... <laughs> <laughs>
1: they, they, they've, they've tried to please people like me but maintain this new mythology they've put in Prometheus and it hasn't worked. I mean, I sat next to somebody who was furious. I wasn't furious. I was quite happy watching it. And actually, I remember Margaret Pomerantz uh, reviewing the first of the Star Wars prequels and she said, if nothing else, George Lucas gives us that moment where the lights go down and the music starts and you get that tingle of excitement remembering how you felt when you first saw the film. And I had that moment with Alien Covenant, the way they did the titles, that, that music hitting. I just got that shiver down the spine of how special those first two films in particular are to me. And then the rest of it I just sat slumped in my seat and went, oh, well, maybe I'll like the next one more. But I, I do feel very disillusioned with this franchise. And, and the, yeah, I got, I got very much into rant mode about, and this is stuff that I thought of after I'd seen the film. I am really annoyed at how they've changed a lot of the mythology and kind of remove this kind of wonderful primal, unknowing, uncaring force of nature kind of creature and made it into some kind of super weapon that, I don't know, evil men rubbing their hands together have engineered. I think that's a really boring place to take this franchise.
2: Yeah, I mean Mother is now a spaceship. It's a, uh, you know, All that wonderful mythology you alluded to in depth earlier, Thomas, about Mm -hmm. the Sigourney Weaver's own maternal instinct versus the uncaring alien uh, and all of this extremely feminine uh, imagery that actually meant a whole bunch of stuff in those first films is now just... I don't know, pretty throwaway. Come, come, this film, and and all the god players are male. Um, they kind of were in the first, but there was there was resistance from the feminine that here is. I mean, I, I just cringed watching some of the women characters in this. Um, it, it, yeah, I, without going to spoiler territory, but um, yeah, the, the the
1: way that they are treated in this film is yeah. totally at odds. Was I the only one a little yeah.
0: like?
1: I, I think you just summed oh. up in about thirty seconds what it took me five minutes to say a moment <laughs> <laughs> ago. So yeah, yeah you did it, say but- it more eloquently though. And yeah. but with also more love because you have more investment <laughs> I, in all of this. I but, um, up. But yeah. yeah. I
2: like
0: think Michael Fassbender getting a bit fisty-cuffy with women. Oh, we can laugh about that now. Good, good. Yeah. Like, that's a bit oh, strange. and that
1: terrible line. The, um, the, 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 the dual audience snigger when the, the bit with the flute where he says... Um, <laughs> that's just shocking. I will do that's the shocking. fingering. That's
0: yeah. a terrible I scene. I
1: will do the fingering is a line that appears unironically in this <laughs> the film. Weird,
0: the weird Fassbender on Fassbender action in this film across the board was strange to me.
1: Yeah. For someone who didn't mind watching this film, I find myself very riled up talking about it. I, I just think I, 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 yeah.
0: I was bewildered, <laughs> but like I said, I think I was meant to be. There's, there's nothing for those of us on the outside. There
1: is nothing here for you if you're new to this franchise, absolutely, yeah. I think yeah, that, And
2: you'll wonder what all of the, the, the love from feminists for the original films, you'll wonder, oh, how, where did that go? Why, yeah. why isn't that somehow in this film?
1: Disappointing. Let's move on because we've got a really interesting film we want to talk about before the show is finished. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. 3 Triple R. 3 Triple. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R with Thomas Alex and Cerise. Fire at Sea is the highly acclaimed 2016 documentary by Italian filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi. It won the main Golden Bear Prize at last year's Berlin International Film Festival and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature earlier this year. Uh, It has screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival and again recently at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and it will be screening this coming Friday, Saturday and Sunday at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Fire at Sea was shot on the Sicilian island of Lampedusa and it captures and juxtaposes the calm daily lives of the islanders with the dramatic and often tragic stories of the mostly African refugees arriving by sea as part of the ongoing European refugee crisis. Fire at Sea has also been widely praised by various human rights groups. Yeah, it's a wonderful documentary. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting
2: because a film that is, uh, about such dreadful things, it is, it operates out of remove from the horror. We, we, I suppose we're asked in a way to compare the the fairly peaceful everyday lives of, uh, there's supposedly only about 6,000 inhabitants of this really pretty tiny island.
1: That's right.
2: Um, we focus on one in particular, a little boy who's maybe 11, 12 years old, um, in contrast to all of the extremely eventful goings-on in the the sea nearby. We know the people on this island are largely dependent upon the sea for their livelihood. It's something that uh, generations and generations of people have lived off of. Um, But at some risk to themselves, seas are dangerous things, uh, as is more than amply illustrated by the thousands who are shipwrecked um, trying to escape um, dire straits in... Uh, Africa, en on, on route to uh, hopefully a safe haven Italy. Um, I'm, I'm not totally clear on just where this island is relative to both, but I get a sense it's maybe fairly equidistant
1: to between <sighs> Africa, between... Yeah, the, the film yeah. tells us at the very start, yeah. but I, I, I watch it's very tired and I've forgotten a lot of the I details. last yes, year, so i But it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of the first part of... If you're coming yeah. from Africa by boat, it's the first part of Europe you're going to encounter. Yeah, yeah.
2: So we get this nice contrast anyway between just everyday goings-on and a little sort of fishing village-type environment where there's one doctor who uh, takes it upon himself to try to treat or at least document all of the people who arrive on the shores there, whether alive or dead. And that's um, one rather fabulous human being right there, that guy. Um, The thing that most struck me about this is that um, the, the role of all things that ophthalmology plays in this, that the little boy gets treated for his eyes at one point. I was reminded of The Look of Silence, another mm, yes. recent yes. documentary. <laughs> Pretty similar image. Of yeah, yeah, very much so, uh, in which we're, we might be asked to question how much we see or should see or should train ourselves to see about atrocities going on around us when we are ourselves people who might be living in relative comfort either distance from those atrocities by time uh, in the look of silence or, or just a little bit of distance a bit of geography as in this film and the very contemporary events in fire at sea it's a it's, it's a slow burn this film but it's really i i found it very affecting it it um made me very sad. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's one of those films, I can't say that I'm really g- glad that I saw it, but at the same time, I, I value the experience of watching this film so deeply. Um, I, I just had one of those weeks where it was like, maybe me and cinema are through. Maybe we're done. And then I watched this. I think I actually tear, like cried, dialed Faith by accident afterwards. Like, oh, you're knocking my phone. It's like, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> hmm. um, I've heard in reviews a few people Describe the the footage of this young boy who lives on the, who, you know, this kind of the, the parts of the film that focus on this on this young chap, um, and and you know his family, you know these these sort of long scenes of of women making beds and you know this very kind of run of the mill everyday stuff that it's described as almost a, a neo realist. Mm vibe running through this and 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 it's such a such a perfect word because it really does recall these sort of italian cinema traditions but in a very um quiet way like it's not this sort of pompous intertextual thing that it's doing it's just you know just that the ordinary days of ordinary people that are shown in such dramatic contrast with the horrors that we see um coming from the ocean and um this is really and where that intersects at with the lives of people in this community. Um, Cerise, you mentioned the doctor. There's a sequence where he's giving a woman an ultrasound and he they do not speak the same language and he's trying to communicate with her uh, news about her twins, um, telling her the gender. And it's just, it's a simple problem. You know, it's a simple moment where language is failing, um, but it, it's it's just so moving. And, I mean, there are scenes in this, in this film that I can barely describe when we get down to the nitty-gritty of um the human experience that these people are facing there's one man who tells a story again in this sort of in the same matter of fact you know it's received by the by the filmmaker in the same matter of fact way and it's presented in the same matter of fact way even though it's still in this in by contrast it's such a heightened um shift from what we're, we're seeing we don't have kids making slingshots where there's a, a man talking about isis coming to his village and and he says they there was nowhere to go i couldn't there was nowhere to hide we couldn't go to the mountains we couldn't stay in the village so we had to run into the sea and um it, it's it's simple you know the simplicity of this film um is what makes it so devastating um, these stories that you can just never forget. And I, I in, my, in my wildest dreams, you know, the number of people who are lining up to see Alien Covenant, I would love them to go and see Fire <laughs> at Sea. I just don't know how you could watch this film and um, if your politics are on the conservative side, I don't know how you could ha- not have a radical shift in how you viewed refugees in the world not just I, in this particular region
1: oh, we're running out of time I don't think there's anything about this film that's going to encourage though that kind of person to go and see no I think film. you're exactly right I, I saw this ridiculously fatigued which was a really bad move um, and I kind of really – I'm wrestling with my response to it. The, the, the footage we see of the refugees when they arrive and they're being treated and we hear about what they've gone through is extraordinarily uh, powerful stuff. And it's it, it, it shot with a lot of integrity. Um, the, the way that juxtaposed against the everyday life that we see in this island is also beautiful. But I, I just kept on – it's not that I got bored with this film, but I, my mind wandered and I was constantly drifting. I will just say again, I was so tired – that I think I went in in a really bad way to see this film but I kept on thinking would this have more power if there was a bit more structure and clear lines being drawn Would it have more power if it was a shorter punchier film um I'm a little bit conflicted because I think there's some extraordinary things going on in this film, but I was in a terrible state and it didn't have the impact on me that I feel like it, it, it should have. I, I, maybe I've said too much already. I don't think I saw this film properly. It, 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 my mind wandered a lot, but then there were moments that I just ached for humanity in it.
2: Yeah, well, look, I think that's a fairly good <laughs> summation with only a couple of minutes left on the clock. So, uh, I, I mean, I would urge people to see this. I think... Uh, a double bill of this and the recent Australian documentary Chasing
1: Asylum. I
0: was thinking of the same is thing. Well, I think
1: Chasing Asylum is a lot more effectively... Well, let's it, Prop. it's agitprop. It's determined to enrage. Whereas this film's film
2: determined more to let imagery and we uh, could say ideology in a way just wash over the viewer and let, let certain things hopefully come to land in their, their head and, and just take root there and perhaps encourage them to see things from a slightly different point of view and then maybe get enraged. No, you go ahead. No, no, I was
0: going to say, I do think that you're right, though, in that there is a degree, perhaps, of preaching to the converted, both with with both of those films, um, in that I would love a lot more people to see those films than perhaps did.
1: I'm going to try and see Um, it again. I'm convinced that I was silly to see it that time. Like, (laughs) it's never a good thing to do with any film, but this one in particular I did myself and the film a disservice, so... Yeah, you, you, listening to you talk about it, I'm kind of recalling stuff now and getting choked up. So I think I need to go and revisit Fire and say I've done a, a dis, a, an injustice. Is that fair enough?
0: We forgive
1: you. you. We forgive you. Whiteley is on limited release courtesy of Transmission Films. Alien Covenant is on wide release courtesy of 20th Century Fox. I will see you at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image this coming Friday or Saturday or Sunday to see Fire at Sea. (laughs) That's screening courtesy of Curious Films. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas. Uh, The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Thank you, Faith. We'll be back next week.